iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The thing that frustrates me about Silicon Valley and tech is that there's this mentality that we are doing this for good. Yes. It's tech for good. We are improving everyone's lives. And that is just false when it comes to a certain set of people that they are living a lie. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I hope you all are doing well. Um, As is happening depressingly often these days. We're bringing you a pod this week in the wake of the shooting of another unarmed black man. There have been protests. uh, There have been counter-protests. This is all happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where uh, the shooting took place. And as of this recording, the NBA has just canceled games for at least two days. This is Wednesday evening. There is discussion about actually canceling the entire season in protest. Major League Baseball has canceled games. WNBA has canceled games uh, in solidarity. You have the Republican National Convention going on. Things are just very fraught. And then just this evening, Wednesday, an armed vigilante walked into a crowd of protesters and opened fire, killing two people and injuring a third. And the reason I bring all of this up is because at the protest, there was a group of armed militia who showed up to, as they said, uh, protect property. And it turns out that they organized themselves and invited each other to this event on Facebook. Now, Facebook has since removed that page as well as the shooter's page. And there's no evidence as of now that the shooter was connected to those particular militia members, though they all did end up showing up to the same event with guns. But it really gets the right back to this just this huge issue for Facebook of how it deals with this extremists, especially in Facebook groups, which it has spent a lot of money and resource building up these kind of private, privately moderated groups where kind of any tribe can find their tribe. And sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's horrendous and tragic. So I bring all of that up because that kind of sets the scene for the conversation I had with this week's guest, who is Arisha Hatch. And she is the head of campaigns at Color of Change, which is a civil rights organization. And you may recognize Color of Change because they were one of the leaders of this Facebook ad boycott that happened last month in July. So over a thousand companies, including Unilever, Ford, Volkswagen, Microsoft, lots of very, very big companies said, okay, we're not going to advertise on Facebook for a month as a kind of a protest against Facebook's either unwillingness or inability to kind of controls 
the kind of the worst elements that appear on its pages. And so before everything happened this week, I had reached out to Arisha just to, because I want to talk to her about that campaign, because it was by, I think, many measures, the biggest boycott of its kind in years. So I just want to talk about how it came together, what it achieved, what's next, why she has chosen to target tech of all things, and what it's like to personally joust with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and really attempting to hold these big big tech companies to to account. And as we head into the final stretch toward the US election, it's uh, it's an important question because as Risha puts it, how Facebook shows up in some of these critical moments, of which there will be many, no doubt, as we get towards November, is going to be a very big deal and could swing things in one way or another. So that is the all the context this week that has started out with the shooting and then has really crescendoed with the canceling of these games, with the emergence of the fact that some of these people who showed up armed at these protests where people were killed organized themselves on Facebook and what does Facebook do to respond? So that is all the context. I'm going to now stop talking. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and give you some new perspective on, um, you know, civil rights and how it fits into the world where, you know, big tech dominates. So without further ado, I give you Arisha Hatch, head of campaigns at Color of Change. Enjoy. Well, let's just start with the basic question. Why did Color of Change do this campaign? And I don't know if, how much of the history of how you got to this point is kind of instructive in that, but... Yeah, well, Color of Change has been going deeper into our work around tech accountability for the last six or seven years. When I joined Color of Change in 2012, we were a newer organization, but we definitely had a, a corporate accountability model. We had you know, asked hundreds of advertisers to drop Glenn Beck. We had just gotten dozens. Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck. Wow, that's a blast from the past. Blast from the past. We had gotten dozens of corporations to leave, leave this right-wing organization called ALEC, the American Legislation Exchange Commission, which was passing all of these voter ID and stand your ground laws across the country. And so we had a corporate, we have a corporate accountability model. We have a theory of change around corporate power. And so when I was hired on to Color of Change, I was living in Oakland. I was sort of raised in a way in the Silicon Valley. I had gone to Stanford and then gone to Santa Clara Law and sort of been in that space. Most of the people that I knew from college, you know, their first job was down the street at Facebook. And so at the time, there were these conversations around Facebook around one, diversity in Silicon Valley. And two, there was this like conversation happening around how Facebook was using ethnicity targeting. It was sort of this like thing that no one was talking about. But I started to wonder, have questions about those things. And so I did. What I thought made sense was like I started to like ask my friends, you know, I started to have industry interviews with my friends, some yeah. that worked in Facebook, but many that were all across the tech landscape. And so we started really sort of drilling into like, why is diversity such a problem? And since then, our work has just sort of grown to look at the impacts of these products on Black people, other people of color, on marginalized communities. What were you doing before Color of Change? How did you come here? I was working at this California-based organization called Courage Campaign that was doing a lot of work to repeal Proposition 8. 
Which one is Prop 8? I, I would think I was living overseas at that time. It, it's, it was the marriage equality ban um, for oh, LGBTQ right. couples. Um, and so I was doing a lot of organizing and work, work around that. When I first heard of Color of Change, the fact that they were a Black-led organization doing you know work to improve the lives of Black people, I was like, this is where I got to be. And so that's how I, I, I joined Color of Change in February of 2012. And Two weeks later, Trayvon Martin was killed. And so my like perspective in the racial justice movement is very much shaped by this like Trayvon Martin moment until now. And we could talk about, I mean, it's a horrendous way to bookend what you're talking about, but what happened in Kenosha mm-hmm. in the past 24 hours. For listeners who don't know, I'm sure by the time this runs, everybody will, but unarmed black man was shot seven times in the back. Yes. On video, on which video. I saw last night. And it's just... It's devastating and folks are already out protesting and yeah, this is like the country and the moment that we're living in. What's so scary about these situations is that so few of them are actually caught on video. Yeah. And so like this is happening, this is happening more frequently than we can even imagine. And yet, you know, there are real consequences the way we set up systems there are real consequences for black people's lives and so the way that we've set up a system of over policing and mass incarceration we see the the visible effects and you know it's the same for the way in which corporations and specifically tech corporations sort of show up we see we see the impacts of systems and products that aren't thought through with black people in mind to that question of systems, so you talk about mass incarceration, law enforcement, all these other things, why tech? Of all the kind of universe of things that you could focus on, why tech? Well, what I've learned, and just as someone that's grown up in the Silicon Valley, is there's this very libertarian sort of mentality, this very colorblind sort of mentality. I'm not racist. I went to Stanford sort of mentality. Yeah. And um, (laughs) that sort of mentality, while I think it's like this like ideal way to be in some future that doesn't exist, is really, really problematic. And so what, what it means is that we have people, we have a lot of my friends who are like going into corporations with the best intentions. Like some yeah. of those intentions are like, I just want to like hang around out around close to my college neighborhood. Um, but there weren't, there's not a lot of intentionality, especially from a civil rights perspective or a racial justice analysis perspective. And so because there are a bunch of well-intentioned folks who have this colorblind mentality, it means that there is no awareness about how what they're doing is actually undoes decades and decades of civil rights work. And so as we think about ethnicity... Actually undoes the work. Undoes the work. And so when we think about, for example, housing discrimination laws that have existed for decades, Facebook now having, or back in several years, having an ethnicity um, identifier that allows folks that are you know, trying to recruit people to lease their housing that allows them to say, we're not going to advertise these places to black people, right? Not the intentionality that anybody came up with, but we see across a number of systems, whether it's housing, whether it's surveillance, whether it's the way that data is collected and turned over to what entities, we see all of these different systems and practices that are actually really undermining lots of hard fought work. When we think about the generations of work that Black organizers and activists did around voting rights. 
Yeah. To have now a public square, one of the biggest public squares in the history of the world, enable people to spread disinformation and misinformation about our voting system. When we have a platform that allows foreign interference in our elections that specifically targets Black people, we are surviving a system and a platform that is actually undermining the voting rights work, um, the wins that we've already won. Um, And there has to be some level of awareness about that by these companies. And it gets to that question of which people often make this distinction between freedom of speech versus freedom of reach. And it's the kind of algorithmic amplification of what would in another time perhaps now be a fringe idea is now put front and center or at least is spread in a way that, you know, everybody can find their tribe for better and often for worse. When you're thinking about, especially, you know, Facebook, for example. So just thinking about all that, you know, undoing of, you know, decades of work. How did you end up organizing the campaign? Um, and how did you get there? Because I've spoken with uh, Rashad before, and he talked about, you know, there were years of meetings and emails and dinners and all of this stuff trying to be like, look, you, you know, we need to be, have some changes here before you got to the campaign. Yeah, well, we started out a couple of years ago, and we demanded a civil rights audit of Facebook. We had just had a civil rights audit of Airbnb, which led them mm. led them to make a number of different commitments and recommendations about how they could improve their product. And there were so many issues going on from so many different sectors with Facebook. Some people really focused on hate speech. Some folks were really focused on surveillance. Some people really focused on how protesters were being targeted by other agencies using social media, all different types of issues. And so we asked Facebook for a civil rights audit, like take some time, dedicate some capacity to really understand all the ways in which this product has an influence on civil rights issues, has an influence over black and other people of color. And so they've been in that process. And what was the reaction? Well, we fought for a while to get them to agree to the civil rights audit. They agreed to it, which we were thankful, but that has been sort of the conversation. And I think our frustration with Facebook has centered around the fact that They've dedicated all these time and resources. There are a number of recommendations that have been put out by the civil rights audit, and yet there hasn't been any real movement. There hasn't been a lot of real movement. And so while we were happy with the progress that we made, we still know that there's a ton of work to be done. And so the boycott, especially as stakes really started to raise um, right around Memorial Day, not only has there been this continuous effort to undermine vote by mail, this conversation sort of playing out, there was the looting and shooting remarks around George Floyd's murder. And these, for a lot of people, were sort of beyond the pale. We had a number of corporations in the aftermath of George Floyd's murders who were like coming out, you know, making yeah. commitments, being very performative about their support for the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think we'd sort of reached this like crescendo moment where we really wanted to see some some sort of action taken by Facebook. Our biggest concerns there are a lot of different asks that we have. But, you know, the, one of the biggest things that we've been pushing for is a permanent civil rights infrastructure that has power within the corporation that can deal with some of these problems on a longer term basis. Um, And we were able to make some movement on that through this one month boycott. We still have huge concerns about a number of things, including the political exception, the way in which politicians are treated differently by Facebook than other people are treated. 
Is this depressing, though? Because you guys got some amazing... You got Unilever and North Face and all kinds of very big brands to agree to this. And then Facebook's financial results come out. And they're like, we had 8 million advertisers on our platform, and now we have 9 million. And we've just hit record profits. And I'm sure you saw there was, you know, they have these town halls uh, very often at Facebook. And there was some pretty um, Zuckerberg, and he was right, I guess. He's just very cavalier. He's like, look, we're not really worried about this. Actually hitting our bottom line. This isn't really going to affect us. Yeah, we need to make some changes, but we're all good. This is not going to be a problem for us. Well, I'm an organizer, so I have to have some level of like optimism. Yeah. There were, just to keep going, but there were a certain level of changes that were made. There were certain commitments that were made because of the years of organizing and because a thousand companies decided to pause their advertising for a month. But the reality is, is like Facebook is one of the most powerful companies in the history of the world. And that is part of the problem with Facebook is that a thousand major advertisers, an entire civil rights community can say like, hey, some of this stuff is deeply problematic. And Mark Zuckerberg can get up in a meeting and say, it's not a big deal to us. Um, And I just think that's like his privilege Mm -hmm. because it is seeing hate speech amplified on platforms puts black lives at risk. Seeing disinformation about our democracy about the pandemic puts black lives at risk. You know, as someone that has sat in meetings with Mark and Sheryl Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg, I believe that they know that this is um, wrong and some of their practices need to be changed. Mm. Um, but the fact that they're only thinking from a, a, a lens of profiteering is what we find deeply problematic. And it's part of the reason that we feel like Mark just has way too much power and way too much control and that, government needs to be looking more deeply at regulation of this company. So what comes next for you guys? You guys have been working on this for several years now. You just had this very high profile boycott, which was, that's now done, right? Because it was for a week, a month starting in July. Right, right. And given what we've all just been talking about, so what's next? Especially because when you talk about this company that's, you know, I don't know. It's like a. It's on its way to a trillion dollars. It just keeps growing. It's and Mark Zuckerberg has a absolute power there. He can't be removed. He can't be really reined in in any way from a kind of corporate governance point of view. Right. So the conversation continues. Where they've agreed to implement the civil rights infrastructure, and so. And what does that? What does that mean? It means hiring of a vice president that is really focused on, has a civil rights background. It's beyond diversity and inclusion. It is leading a discussion throughout the corporation about the impacts of their products on marginalized communities and having that front and center. And so there's some work to actually identify who that right person is and what the infrastructure around them is, because it's not just about hiring one chief or one VP. It's about actually having capacity and having power to move ideas. That's what I was going to say, because it's such an engineering-led place. It's, you know, it's like build it and get it out the door. So for a role like that, which is also would be a new thing, would probably be a non-engineer in that role, how much power they can actually have to be like, hey, engineers, this new product launch, let's pump the brakes. 
because there's some issues here that we need to check. I think that just feels kind of like that's going to be a real challenge to actually figure that out and give somebody, empowers whoever takes that position. I think that they are some of the most, the smartest, most brilliant people. We know that Facebook has a culture that is able to move things fast and quickly. We know when they make something a priority, it happens. And so the expectation and, you know, a lot of this is their responsibility. They're responsible for the hate speech on their platform. They're responsible for it. And so they need to take this with a real level of seriousness. Mm. Um, We've heard a lot of platitudes. You know, we've heard a lot of things about how they are unaffected. I would like to think that some of these decision makers are at some level moral people who can move beyond just a profiteering motive who can move beyond this, you know, this attempt to make this a left or versus right issue, a partisan issue. And we'll say, actually, we're going to a dark place. We're, we're leading us to like a dark place here. And um, um, we need to make some real changes. But that is really on Facebook. And Mark is coming out and saying that he cares about these things. He cares about these things. He cares about these things. They matter to him. He's invested him and his wife in initiatives like Forward, who is trying to help right. you know immigrants. They've invested in a number of um, initiatives, and this is a place where they actually have real, where he actually has real power to make change, and it's his, his responsibility ultimately. So we're going to continue to be in a conversation with them about that, making sure that there is real power imbued in that position and in that department. And then I think, you know, we will continue to have a conversation about the political exception. Even though the boycott is no longer at full steam, Trump is going to say something tomorrow. Yeah. Like that, you know, like they are going and to when have... You say, when you talk about the political exception, what exactly do you mean? It's the exception that allows Trump to say anything unchecked. It's the exception that allows a politician... Or any politician. Any politician or right. any candidate to say things unchecked, things that are violate the policy of Facebook that a normal person who wasn't a candidate or elected official couldn't say. And it really brings the bar down. Um, and they're using things like newsworthiness and public health. They're using all of these excuses. But some of this stuff is flat out inflammatory. Some of the stuff, they've been more reactive on COVID related information, but some of this stuff puts like people's lives at risk. Yeah. And so, you know, if they're going to operate a marketplace in a public square, they've got to officiate in that in some way. Like if fights break out, you got to have someone break up the fight, you know? Yeah. They've got to be a better referee. Yeah. They've got to be a better referee or they should be regulated if they are unwilling to be a referee. And so Trump is the biggest example. Facebook often likes to focus on like, well, you know, this is like finding a needle in a haystack. Well, it's not like, There's a set of things that are happening at the highest levels and the most visible levels um, of their corporation. But that is, you know, that conversation could be reignited every day. There are daily decisions that are going to have to be made with regards to what is acceptable content on that platform. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And what other levers are you pulling? Because obviously there's this huge, I mean, we all saw the kind of a very weird made-for-TV moment when you had the four tech CEOs testifying before Congress via Zoom. How involved are you, or if at all, in on that kind of the regulation piece? Because that feels like that's really important, especially when you talk about responsibility for what is on this platform. And the Section 230, you know, we have this liability shield. If it's a third party, we're not responsible. It does feel like there's some movement there. I don't know if you have any visibility into that or how involved or not you are in that. Yeah, we obviously started this boycott with partners sort of understanding that those hearings would be a bookend. And um, these conversations are very much related. Color of Change has had staff actually testify at hearings related to this. We've done work working with specific elected officials who would be in the questioning around making sure that they fully understand the types of things at issues. I I mean, I know folks remember that moment, um, and I think it was one of the few years ago when Mark Zuckerberg testified, and it was like, all the memes were like, Mark Zuckerberg explains the internet to Congress. Yes. Like, we've really spent a lot of time since then. It was better. It was a lot better this time. There was still a lot of nonsense, but it was way better Mm -hmm. than it was that first time Mm -hmm. around when it was felt like they were treating Mark like the IT guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we've spent a lot, like we never want those headlines again. We spent a lot of time making sure that folks understand the issues at stake. And so we definitely have seen forward progress there. You know, we're in a dynamic world, like anything could happen tomorrow. A lot is at stake in this upcoming election in terms of how different folks show up. I actually think Facebook and Twitter, they're sort of, I I know they're deeply involved in critical conversations about how they have to show up during this election. And so that is still an ongoing conversation because we're sort of reaching, I think, a lot of people feel it. We're reaching this sort of like tipping point moment in terms of our Well, that's what I was going to ask you because, I mean, I'm actually from the Bay Area as well. I was gone for 15 years. I now live in Oakland. Mm-hmm. But I came back, it'll be four years in December. So we moved here right after the election of Trump. And we've been writing about a lot of the stuff we're talking about one way or another since I moved back. It does feel like we are reaching a, a moment. And I'm wondering if, you, I mean, you've been at the coalface with these issues, does this feel different than the the previous times we're like, all right, something's got to change now or there's a crackdown now and it doesn't happen? It does feel like we're at a tipping point moment, a real one. As I talk to older civil rights activists, you know, who have been doing work for generations, they are absolutely like, one, delighted by the positive movement in terms of narrative and progress 
um, in terms of racial justice conversations and yet terrified by where our democracy is at. You know, people, I think that there is a reason to be anxious about where we are in terms of our democracy. People have been scenario planning around this for years, around whether there would be like a peaceful transition of power. Like we're right there. You know, we're like, in my mind, we're like close to Handmaid's Tale and we're already wearing masks. Like it's, we're really, really close to the line. Yeah, depending on the lens you, or the kind of the way you want to look at things, it can get pretty dark pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think things are getting really scary. And I, I think we're still in this moment where good people can stand up and speak out, but we might not have that window much longer from a like a democratic perspective. Yeah. Coming from the Bay Area, as you do, I mean, there is something I'd be interested in your perspective on this is like, you know, when you talk about Silicon Valley and how it kind of has this libertarian bent, like, you know, it's not a question of like, the question is usually like, can we build it? Not should we build it? And technology is this great equalizer. It's going to open the world. It's going to do all of these wonderful things. And there's thus far, there's been a lot less critical thought put into what else could this do? Where's the dark places this could go? And it does feel like there's something, I mean, do you think there is something particular about this place and the way things are built and put out into the world that makes it kind of more pernicious? And is there an awakening to that kind of power amongst the people that matter, if so? Yeah, I mean, look at what Silicon Valley has done to Oakland, right? And San Francisco. There are no Black people left there. (laughs) Like, they're just like none. They've been moved, they've been totally moved out. And I think what is so, the word's not scary, but the thing that frustrates me about Silicon Valley and tech is that there is this mentality that we are doing this for good. Yes. It's tech for good. We are improving everyone's lives. And that is just false when it comes to a certain set of people, that they are living a lie um, when it comes to a certain set of people. And what we're asking for, I think, is not super radical. It's just to like, if you actually have a mission of improving the world, of improving democracy, of letting more marginalized people have voice, then actually live that and lean into that. And when there are people like civil rights organizations like the NAACP and the Leadership Conference and Color of Change saying to you, like, hey, these are the ways in which you are not making things better for Black people or for other brown Mm. people or for other poor people, then you should lean in and understand that those people aren't against you. They are trying yeah. to help you live live up to your best selves. And I think that's what's most scary about tech right now is that there um some folks have been able to delude themselves into believing that it's all positive, that it's all good. Or are willing to to remain blind or continue to profit off of things that aren't all good. Now what we have seen and what I do think is a positive trajectory is we now see folks from within the companies actually sort of standing up and saying like, hey, We've got a problem with this. The number of friends that I had that worked at Facebook 10 years ago, 15 years ago that have left because there was something deeply problematic in the way that things were run there or deeply problematic about the culture and the worldview. I have a large group of folks that have done that. And we've we've just seen over and over that the changes at Facebook, if they happen, will be led internally through internal pressure and external pressure. And I think that's the point that we're really at right now. And how big a piece is the actual workplace diversity of this? Because, I mean, all the big companies now, they do their yearly diversity reports, and they all make for very depressing reading. 
but then you get into okay well how do you aim at that problem when when i think fairly they'll say you know this isn't just like a tech problem this is like we are at the end of a funnel that starts with just society more broadly and you know all the socioeconomic factors that go into making it harder to find people of color in these jobs but how do you guys think about that in terms of like actually like when you have putting a new product in your have something you know what's the likelihood that there is a person of color there who can actually say hey have you guys thought about this and how this is going to work and how this is going to affect or could potentially go wrong for a large swathe of the population I think diversity and representation is important, but it's not the only thing. I actually think of diversity as table stakes. Like, it's just like what they should be doing now. Like, Mm -hmm. and I actually think, you know, I think we've become very accustomed to these narratives of there aren't enough qualified women or there aren't enough qualified black people. I think those are actually like deeply racist mentalities and sexist mentalities that I would like to see in my lifetime. People understand that like, those things just aren't true. Um, And yes, this isn't a problem that is unique to Silicon Valley. Like we still haven't had a woman president or vice president in our country. And yet there are certainly women that are qualified to lead there. And so this is a persistent systemic problem. And yet as someone that has built a black led digital tech organization who was told that I would never be able to hire Black campaigners, I would never be able to poach them from the moveon.orgs of the world or like we hired a majority black staff. Um, And it was because we focused more on recruitment. We had networks of people that we could reach out to. And we actually valued having people that were reflective of our membership in positions of power doing the work. And so, again, this is like a cultural attitude. It's especially unacceptable for a corporate company who has, you know, a major leader who has written you know, a feminist book called Lean In to struggle with the importance of diversity. And so I I just think it's a lot of excuses to work around the fact that they don't know how to find or recruit diverse people and that they're not really interested in that. I mean, these are all very big, seemingly, if you're not a hopeful person, seemingly intractable problems. Is basically all of your effort focused on Facebook because that's kind of quote Hamilton. It's the room where it happens. It's the room where it all happens. Or are you looking at other, I mean, you mentioned you guys did some work with Airbnb. Are there other areas where you're focused putting some of your energies? Um, Yeah. I mean, we're focused on Silicon Valley generally um, and corporate accountability generally when it comes to sort of when it comes to black people. And so, you know, we've pressured Twitter on a set of things. We've pressured Airbnb, as you mentioned, on a set of things. We've protested at Google and Amazon. Like there's a whole bunch of work happening in that space because Silicon Valley from a corporate power perspective is a growing industry that is here to stay. Yeah. And I I think it's an interesting space to do corporate accountability work because they're still in the early stages of figuring out what this looks like. There was a point in my lifetime in my lifetime at color of change when like some of these companies were just for the first time setting up lobbying offices in DC. Right. So they're like, and I think, I think Facebook has now more lobbyists than sitting U S senators. Um, you see how quickly these things like grow and balloon. And so that's why it feels like a very important industry for yeah. us to attempt to influence. Like I said, I don't expect us to shut down Facebook. Like I don't expect us to bankrupt Mark Zuckerberg, 
But I do know that it is a place that we're going to have to contend for power with because so many things are made possible through that platform and through the growth of that platform. So just in terms of just kind of going back to where we started, in Facebook in particular, post-boycott, it's the kind of the next kind of signpost for you guys is the hiring of this hopefully powerful civil rights professional within the organization. Absolutely. And dedicated capacity towards that team. That will help us to continue to have conversations moving forward because there's going to be a lot of things that pop up. There's a lot of things that need to be solved. There's a lot of debt, technical debt that they need to resolve. There are a ton of recommendations that they could work to implement tomorrow. And that's what we want to see happen. There's a whole bunch of recommendations from their own people that need to be implemented. And then I think that it's this ongoing conversation about the political exception, I think, and we're watching very closely about how Facebook continues to show up in this election. In the event that there's a moment uh, that they actually have to make a real decision, what if Trump declares victory and he hasn't actually won an election? How does Facebook right. show up in that moment? How does Twitter show up in that moment? Those are the types of conversations that we're having um, with Silicon Valley right now. And as a campaigner, is it extra frustrating dealing with tech because it's all clothed in this like kumbaya, making the world a better place kind of branding when, as we've seen play out time and time again, the actual real world consequences are so far from that reality and just the kind of trying to somehow change that. You know, it's not like an oil company where you're like, oh, you're an oil company. You, you know, everybody has or you're not a tobacco company. You're a tech company whose whole thing is, I want to make the world a better place. I think that's what's super frustrating for me as a person that has a lot of friends in this space. Like, these are friends. Like, they care about me. I know we share values about a whole set of things. And I think it's frustrating when you're talking to people that should know better and continue to gaslight you. Like like you said, they're not they're not folks that are building private prisons. Like we know when we go into a meeting with folks that are building <laughs> private fr- prisons, like we're probably not going to have a shared value. Yeah. Like, you know, the things that we're asking for are will fundamentally shut your business down. The things that we're asking Facebook to do doesn't fundamentally shut their business down. As Mark said, it's 1%. It has no effect whatsoever on their bottom line. Um, and so I think that's what's, frustrating um, and demoralizing about it. But it's also required an adjustment to understand. I understand Facebook's motivations and all of this. Facebook is now shown that they're willing to bend over backwards to twist themselves in knots to make false comparisons and equivalencies between civil rights issues and whatever nonsense the right is spewing. They are willing to do that so that Mark Zuckerberg can maintain power. And in a lot of ways, it's not about, that's what I've learned. It's not about all the good people or the well-intentioned people who have written books claiming feminist power. It is about a company that is so deeply entrenched that it is willing to do anything to hang on to that power, even if it means everybody hates them. (laughs) <laughs> how long did it take you to figure to, to kind of arrive at that conclusion um i mean again i'm an optimist and i like believe in people but you know some of the things are really basic at this point and there doesn't need to be pushed back to some of the basic things and so you know the addition of joel kaplan they're essentially making an argument around content that is very similar to trump's statement after charlottesville which is like they're 
good people on both sides. On both sides. And that's just like unacceptable behavior that is make something partisan that isn't partisan like hate speech isn't protected speech it is not the first amendment and to make those things partisan to like act like there are two sides to those things you know to make it seem like it's right versus left versus right versus wrong i think is you know the real problem well look i wish you luck with it all it sounds Thank like you. there's still <laughs> there's still a lot of work to be done but I guess that's the life of, camp- of a campaigner, right? Yeah. No campaign is ever really done. We just like make progress, make progress, make progress until there's real change and we can move on. But like we'd love yeah. to move on to other things, but it feels like we're <laughs> going to be in this conversation with Facebook for a while, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Arisha for taking the time to, to talk. Fascinating world in which she operates. I'm always amazed at when I speak to organizers because she said you have to be an optimist often uh, in the face of some pretty daunting forces and some very long odds. But um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please stay safe. Stay sane. I will be writing about a bunch of stuff in the Sunday Times this weekend. You can find me at thetimes.co.uk on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Or email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I will talk to you next week. Have a great, safe weekend. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.